0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild. Or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the donate. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. I want to start off just by thanking all of you who are listening. And for those of you who started listening in Unlearn and Rewild days. It seems so long ago that March and I were driving up the mountain trying to find enough service to get in our hotspot to record with people like Vandana Shiva or using the solar panel on our car battery just to charge the computer enough to even get through an entire episode. There were so many crazy behind-the-scenes recording experiences not knowing what the hell we were doing. We have stuck it through and I have to say that I have learned from every single podcast every guest has shaped me and molded me into the woman that I am and I really feel so blessed and lucky to be able to be a part of this collective that puts this on every week and the research and just the connections that we share together and then get to share with a wider audience is beyond a gift We are using technology in a beneficial way, I think, in this case. And we're able to cross borders and connect with one another on some of the most intense, disturbing, pressing, beautiful issues of our time. And I don't know where I'd be without this guidance. So we are just so grateful and excited to share with you a mashup. March came back to produced this 100th episode, so it's a real joy to have him at the helm, going through years of so much dedication and picking out little bits of magic to share with y'all today.
1: The memories linger, drifting on the way.
0: Stephen herod has really guided my life in so many ways. I definitely feel like I was called by the plants, a calling that is so beyond my little life. And the Stephen herod Buner two-part interview had really been this manifesto that I listened to in the first few extremely challenging years living out here. No running water, electricity and it it hasn't really gotten that much easier, but I'm okay with that.
2: We learn things like nothing else is intelligent on the earth except for human beings. Other things are like lesser intelligences. And we we build up sort of a software program of ourselves in the world. Now, most people take antidepressants, or they become drunkards, or they watch a lot of TV, or they learn to shut it off. But there's a certain number of people that that begin to go, wait a second, the picture I was given doesn't match what I'm encountering in the real world. And a few people go, I want to find out what's real. And they act as what this guy, Edward de Bono called a depatterning factor for the culture. And it's really important that they do that because it keeps the culture more vibrant. Of course, the culture doesn't really like it. And there's a lot of conflicts about their framework being upset. But nevertheless, In the beginning, a lot of us think it's a rather romantic journey, and it is, but there's many people that have passed before, and we'll see the records, the passages, the writings of some of them, and we'll get all inspired, and we'll start saying, oh, I want to do that, and we start following along. And then we begin to find out that there's a price, and it costs us this little piece of ourself, this little piece of our illusion about the nature of the world, We begin giving up our sort of narcissistic orientation. We begin to be subsumed into this larger framework. The earth begins to flow through us more and more. And a lot of people, it starts with the plants. I don't know why. For most of the people that have really moved me in my life, Gerta Masanobu Fukuoka, Luther Burbank, Barbara McClintock, it was the plants that pulled them deeper into the world and begin to reveal to them what's really going on here, which is very different than what we've been taught. We get pulled a little deeper, we get pulled a little deeper, we get pulled a little deeper, and then we begin to be aware that there's a certain work in us that we're meant to do. You know, Wallace Stegner put it this great way, he goes, uh, people in America do not understand that we have been subsumed by what we conquered. We begin to go deeper and deeper and we give up a little more and a little more and finally this process begins to happen where we begin to become old growth ourselves where we begin to become the earth speaking on behalf of itself and that narcissistic sort of anthropocentrism that was the majority of who we are is stripped away more and more and more of the psychological frame is stripped down to the foundation over and over again Until it fundamentally is remade and matches more accurately the reality of the world, you become something else in the process. It costs you everything that you are to become that thing.
0: As many of you probably know with my work in the Tongass and in the Redwoods and the temperate rainforest in general that I am... Completely in love with salmon. And Chief Kaline Sisk is beyond an inspiration when it comes to this incredible godlike species. And to think about the desecration and the plantation forest and these forests that are trying so hard to come back and knowing that they don't have their salmon kin to feed off of is a really frightening thought for the future. So I look to people like Chief Kaline Sisk for spiritual and ecological sanity in this really crazy time
1: what we're trying to do is wake the people up to the realities of what water is our tribe has been uh, trying to bring young people up to the river so they can actually see what a real river looks like when it comes off the mountain how crystal clear you can see to the bottom you can you can feel it alive you know you can taste it and let them know that this is how these rivers used to run all the way to the delta. Now they don't, because for some reason this society, that this modernization, has decided that it's okay to dump everything and anything into the waterways and think that, that that's fine, nothing's going to happen. For, for some reason they do that, whereas the old way was that this water is precious. This water is life. You get take care of this water. You don't, you know, you don't go throwing things in there. Uh, you pray to this water. But this day and age, you know, hardly anybody prays to the water. I mean, even in the Catholic Church, you know, they have holy water that they put, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what they do with it, but they use it. Every other place, water is a commodity. Water is, you know, taken for granted. The minimum believe that creators talking to them they're still connected because they only do things one time and each generation has to have that connection when the fish stop doing what they were told by creator that connection will have been broken and there won't be any hope for our water systems so right now our fish that were taken from our river swim in new zealand because of fish hatchery we are working very hard to bring them back because we believe They will help bring balance back to the river systems here in California. But not only that, they will change many things in the ocean as they come back into the system. Because in New Zealand, our fish are still wild. Wild winter run chinook are over there from our river. And when we bring them back, the water systems uh, will wake up. And so will the people.
0: Bronte is one of my dearest friends, and they have shifted my perspective time and time again. And I'm just fascinated with this idea of cosmic
3: literacy. I think about Harriet Tubman and many other folks' relationship to the North Star, and I think about this practice in celestial navigation. and. Something I have been writing about is this concept of cosmic literacy, decolonizing literacy. Oftentimes, it's written that Harriet Tubman was an illiterate slave. Scholars talk about moving out of the concept of calling folks slaves, out of the noun into the action that was happening upon these people, so the enslaved. Instead of being like, this person was illiterate, actually, what literacy did she have? She was literate. It wasn't your literacy. Oh, but Harriet Tubman was literate. Harriet Tubman was literate in the stars. Harriet Tubman was literate in the soil. Harriet Tubman was the only woman to lead a military operation during the Civil War. (laughs) This was happening in the wintertime. This was happening at night. She was also a nurse in the Civil War. So I'm always like, this person was an herbalist. So how do I start to read how she knew plants via her dream world, the ways spirit and God were telling her these roots? And so I'm just like, wow, okay, that's another kind of literacy to have a spiritual literacy, to have another relationship to time in the gravity of faith, to know that another way is possible to be literate in imagination. What Martin Luther King called cosmic companionship that we have that is with us, that the stars are with us, that the sky is with us, that the earth is with us.
0: I remember learning about Andrew Harvey at the very beginning of my activist trajectory and he was really weaving in spirituality and theology and the way we engage in this really intense work.
4: Matter is just as sacred as the light. Once the light has opened your eyes to the light's dance in and as matter, heaven and earth become one living experience and body and soul become married. So you live consciously as an ensouled body and an embodied soul having a unified Experience with the whole of reality as the endlessly flowering dance of the light. And how this deeply relates to sacred activism is this the situation that we're going into is infinitely serious, and everything depends upon how we meet it with the fullest and most embodied consciousness, because we're truly in danger of destroying ourselves. So what's required is the bringing together in ourselves of the deepest wisdom of all of the traditions of the journey into God, the deepest mother wisdom of being one with the whole of this gorgeous reality and the deepest father wisdom of being one with the one light, bring them together together so that we can be as fully embodied as possible and as fully fearless in our transcendent origin as possible so that we can truly come forward in this vast, explosive, paralyzing, horrific crisis which is going on on every level of our civilization so that we can truly come forward and give our lives calmly and joyfully as prayers of sacred activism, as prayers of sacred transformatory action.
0: Angelo Baca is this elder in a young person's body to me. His knowledge and his connection to his grandmother and the land. And I've been really moved by the lands of the Southwest and Bears Ears and Grand Escalante. And people say that these lands are dead, that there's nothing there, and that they should be just open for the oil and gas companies. We did a webinar recently, and so I would really encourage everybody to stay attuned to what's happening with public lands and Bears Ears. And let's really come together and fight this because every generation's job is to protect the land. You know, the Trump administration is not going to be the last administration that wants to rape these lands. And we really need to do more and more to protect these last remnants.
5: So we can continue to do what we've been doing, which hasn't worked very well, or we can do what we have been as native people doing for centuries before anybody got here, which was our own ways of stewardship management, taking care of the land and the plants and the animals. And so what we have to do a lot is kind of bring people up to speed between 200 and 500 plus years of how we do things. And it's very difficult when they already have closed off their mind to these conversations. So, you know, my invitation is always for them to civilly and peacefully have these discourses, to think on things and consider it, and to understand that we are all tied to everything else, uh, everything is connected. And for Native people, we're very much plugged into the world and the universe in a different way than most folks are, especially because we've been into the landscape or the places that we live in for a very, very long time. So even from a scientific perspective, we are the first scientists. We have accumulated long-term aggregated data about a place and its inhabitants.
6: When I close my eyes at night, I can feel the rock being cut open by water. I hear a grandfather's song, and it sounds like sand walking down the river bottom. In this song, they talk about how even the mighty canyon walls were formed by meandering streams. Beneath the gentle waters, there are people. Not people like you and I. Stone people. When I close my eyes at night, I am one of them. And God is the water. Over lifetimes, she eats away at me until I am polished and smooth. She teaches me about being gentle and persistent. She teaches me about patience and commitment. When I close my eyes, she speaks to me in this language of trickles and bubbles. And she says, journeys, take them and try to remember who you are along the way.
0: I love this excerpt from Lila June and her incredible stand up poetry, music, art, She is a dear friend, and I have felt so blessed to walk this path with her so far. She brings so much healing to so many people, and she doesn't shame or guilt, but instead she is this selfless vessel that holds so much.
6: And so if we help the women, we help everything. And the Cree have a proverb that says, a nation is not defeated until the hearts of the women are on the ground. Because they knew that ultimately it was the women who were the pillars of the society. And what you have then is you have a converse of that, which is a a nation can be restored if we uplift the hearts of the women off the ground. And obviously you get into a lot of philosophical debates about gender binaries there, and I haven't quite figured out how to tackle that debate even though I myself believed I was gay for a long time but kind of realized that that was me wanting to be male because I thought being female was a curse that's a whole nother story I don't know how to answer that right now but anyway if womanhood and manhood which to me doesn't mean skirts and lipstick or monster trucks and big muscles or anything like that it means more like can you birth a human being out of your body that's how I define woman do you have that ability? And even if you don't, maybe you had a hysterectomy or something, but you came to this earth ready and willing to try, you know that makes you a woman in my eyes. So in terms of women being leaders of the resistance, if you will, by and large, women, this is a big generalization, generalization warning, women lead with their hearts. And women have a very intimate connection to the children. And so if our movement is designed to create a hospitable world for the next seven generations, then the women is probably who we should be talking to, especially the grandmothers. Because the grandmothers have also seen it happen for their children's children. And they're in that phase. They're in that grandmother's lodge, as my mother calls it where they have a very longitudinal understanding of what it means to raise a generation from the earth. And that's how it was in the old days. The grandmothers were the leaders of the society. Not only did they have that motherly nature, but they also had just been here for a long time and seen a lot of things and learned a lot of things through experience. And so they were the ones who chose people to take certain positions of leadership. They were like the leaders of the leaders. And so it all comes back to life. You can slip from a movement for life to a movement for revenge very quickly without noticing. And so we need to remember our movements are about life. It's about growing life, sustaining life, building life, and protecting life, honoring life cultivating life, diversifying life, enjoying life. And so when we remember that that's what we're really here for, we remember that it's time to turn to the life bearer.
0: Derek really ushered me into the movement in so many ways. I felt so connected with how honest he was and how blunt he was about what was happening to the earth. And he wasn't apologetic. And there was something so potent for me in that And I love what he's saying about loyalty, and that's really shifted my perspective of who am I loyal to. If I'm loyal to the land base, my decisions are very different, and it's something that I really strive for every
7: day. The point is that even on that level, we identify with the system, you know, how can we make the U.S. economy grow? I mean, do we really want the U.S. economy to grow? Do we really want the U.S. economy to exist? I'm not interested in what is best for the economy. I'm interested in what is best for the Colorado River. I'm really interested in what is best for the Smith River here where I live. I'm really interested in what's best for the salmon. I'm really interested in what's best for the land base. One of my books, What We Leave Behind, the central question of that book is, or the central answer of that book is understanding that the measure by which we'll be judged and the measure by which we should be judged is do we leave the world a better place by having been here and by world I don't mean capitalism I don't mean industrial civilization I mean the real physical world and this is a really important topic for environmentalism because in the past 30 years or so past 40 years whatever a lot of the environmental movement has been completely hijacked away from being about protecting wild places and wild creatures and wild plants to being about perpetuating the culture for a little bit longer so this is how you can get just this whole sort of high-tech sustainability movement that has nothing to do with sustainability That's it's not about sustaining the real world helping the real world to sustain itself it's all about sustaining this destructive culture i think it's desperately important for us to think very clearly about to whom we are loyal if you are loyal to the agricultural industry in arizona and las vegas and nevada and the agricultural industry and the cities in southern california then it can make sense to dewater the colorado river but if your loyalty is to the river and those non-humans and humans who actually depend upon the river then you will make entirely different decisions there's a great line by r d lang about how how we perceive the world affects how we behave in the world. And if you perceive the world as consisting of industrial civilization and the real world is getting a job, then you're going to behave in one way. But if the real world is your own embodied life and the embodied life of the forest and the embodied life of the river, then you're going to have an entirely different set of responses.
0: Al Noor and Ariel Duranje were the first people who told me about We2Go, this cannibalistic mind virus, and it's something that has stuck with me ever since because I do feel like humanity, for the most part, has been infected with a mind virus to keep consuming and to extract resources at any cost, no matter how much is being slaughtered. And not that I can say for certain, but it doesn't seem like we're any happier for having all of this material bullshit that's killing the earth. So instead of trying to find
8: ways to stop what we've done
0: to become the most powerful
8: nations on the planet, we still are holding on to that power. We're not letting go because we have this disease, this wheat to go disease, and we've commodified everything. And now we're even commodifying the atmosphere through these prescribed carbon market mechanisms and conservation offsets, cap-and-trade systems that do nothing to actually challenge the structural violence that has got us to where we are. And it allows us, these governments and systems, to keep furthering this cannibalization of the planet. There's this sort of mentality that we cannot survive without progress, and progress is defined within the parameters of economic growth personal wealth, personal gain. And therefore, we continue to cannibalize this planet, even though we see that climate change and all the science and all the numbers is pointing that we are literally walking towards the cliff's edge and letting this sort of brigade of people take us on our merry way towards the end of humanity.
9: Where to go. Algonquin word for this cannibalistic spirit, and in Ojibwe, it's Windigo or Wintico and in, in Powhatan, it literally referred to cannibalism. And what a lot of this indigenous lore said was two things would happen when someone, out of necessity, even you know, in in a northern winter or whatever, ate another human being's flesh. One would be an icy heart. And the second would be this unnatural desire to consume more flesh. And when the First Nations communities of North America first interacted with the European colonialists, this word comes back into the vocabulary because that's how they saw their relationship with nature and and of course with the First Nations themselves. And I think if we go back far enough, the real root of the wetiko virus, of the sort of cannibalism that's inherent in Western modern culture, comes from our separation from nature, which you know, many argue that stemmed from the Neolithic revolution, from farming, from sedentary lifestyle. So we went from hunter-gatherers that lived in codependence with the mother Our ancestors would go into nature and they would be in this natural bounty. They would hunt and gather the necessary food and calories they needed. And we know from a lot of the research in cultural anthropology, like Marshall Salin's work, the original affluent society, that hunter-gatherers actually lived not what we are told, the Hobbesian worldview of a sort of brutish, nasty, short live but quite the opposite they were working 10 to 20 hours a week their average calories were about 2,000 calories per person we know this from teeth samples and bone density and other things so they were living quite decent lives compared to even modern standards of how the majority of people nowadays live and so and not to say we want to go back to that way of living but there's something really interesting that happens when our livelihood comes from taming nature and extracting from nature and the sort of farming mindset and this initial separation happens. And we know that some of the first buildings that are built in the first city-states of Ur and Babylon are the granaries. Because as soon as you have a surplus of food production, you then create a place to store that surplus. And then you need a military or militia or police or whatever to, to protect that surplus. And then hierarchy is created, and you have your you know, emperors and sun kings and all of that. And so you know, from Babylon to New York is a very short distance both psychologically, culturally, and temporally. And so you end up in this place where we value the sort of brute strength of the male, which creates this sort of patriarchal culture. There's a culture of extraction, of rape. You know, we essentially have a rape culture as the dominant culture, that's what Western culture is. And I'm not just talking about the effects on women in this culture. And of course, that is the dominant thread, but, you know, the mother herself, right, to mother nature, to earth herself. And so it's really deeply embedded in the Western European psyche. And this is not to blame, you know, Western Europeans. When we came out of the Fertile Crescent, those were the heavily populated areas. And then through colonialism and imperialism and war and violence and expansion, this culture has become the dominant culture. And the way it's sort of affects us all is through memes, essentially, cultural ideas. And, you know, memes just are essentially the base unit of culture. And they're transmitted in many ways. We don't even know, which is why understanding and deconstructing culture is so important to understand the ways in which we're controlled, right? The the invisible hand, Adam Smith's theory of the invisible hand is the perfect mimetic virus, right? We know from uh, 30 plus years of economic data, that it's fundamentally untrue, that if people behave selfishly, there will not be a perfect equilibrium, quite the opposite.
0: I really love George. We had a webinar with him for the One Million Redwoods Project, and the depth that he understands our troubled times, plus how much he is so in love with the earth and with the oceans.
10: Once upon a time, almost everything was a commons. All our land was held in common. Our water, our our crucial resources, our fish, our forests, a whole lot of it. But gradually, those common resources were grabbed, enclosed, primarily by the market, but also by the state, with devastating consequences for people. And what the commons is, is, is not capitalism, and it's not communism. It's something else entirely. It's community management and community benefit on a shared and equal basis so the land was once held in common almost everywhere the concept of private land ownership was completely alien to people worldwide until the 15th century in Britain it was in England that it was invented and then it was spread through colonial conquest all over the world and then copied by other colonial powers and it became the dominant model and now we can hardly conceive of being without it but it's a very recent thing and a very alien thing to the whole of the rest of human history and it's a highly destructive thing because when a commons is enclosed not only is a community scattered and destroyed with devastating consequences I mean I've seen With my own eyes, what's happened to indigenous people when they lose their land? And those people are us. We are all living in a post enclosure society because we lost our commons. Everybody lost their commons through the same processes. But it's not just that we lose ourselves in that. We lose the living world as well because the common system protected it. But when, when that land is grabbed, when it's either privatised or seized by the state, people then try to extract as much profit from it as quickly as they can and reinvest that profit elsewhere. And that means turning the polycultures, the complex systems with which we lived, into monocultures with devastating environmental consequences. And gradually we're seeing that process creeping around the world. So what we have to do is to try to restore the commons. And I think there are various means of doing it. When it comes to issues like land, I would like to see a land value tax on the most valuable properties, which brings down the price of land for a start. And then part of the product of that tax used to allow communities to buy land back and then start managing it in common, which is crucial, both for our own well-being and for the well-being of the land and its ecosystems. At sea, I would love to see instead of the smash-and-grab, free-for-all, open-access system we have at the moment, I would like to see a common system where a community of fishers and other people, for that matter, divers and recreational anglers and wildlife watchers, whale watchers and the rest of it, manage an area in common together. And they don't let other people come and exploit it, but they say, right, this is under our control as a community, And we're going to make sure that all the wonderful species and ecosystems here are going to be sustained forever so that we can continue to love and enjoy them and to make a living from them. And they can continue to sustain the natural wonders of the marine world.
0: There's been so many conversations that have left me emotional and distraught, but I was really able to grieve with Kurt and I think partially it's because he allowed himself to share how he felt and I remember one time in the conversation he says if I sound angry it's because I am and there was something so potent in his love and his care and his ferociousness to protect Tokatai and the Sailor Sea and the Lummi Nation and the Chinook Salmon and I think a lot of us are always looking for action points and how to be engaged and how to get involved and what can we do that's tangible. And I really believe that we can come together and demand the removal of the Snake River dams. And that's something that we're going to be continuing to work on as a collective For the Wild in the next year with many other fighters for the Pacific
11: Ocean. But she died, like, more than likely, she died of starvation, Her mother was trying to feed her. Her family shared their food with her. Isn't that amazing? But it wasn't nurturing her because, well, we don't know why. They're living in a sick ocean. We uh, here in the tribe participate in the uh, governor of the state of Washington's Southern Resident Killer Whale Task Force. Yeah. Well. It's not rocket science. What these killer whales need—they need food. <laughs> they need five hundred and eighty thousand pounds of chinook a year to survive. They're not getting one tenth that. If they really cared about this, rather than having task force debate over how many. Angels can dance on the head of a pin. All they've got to do is take down the Snake River dams. They can do that in two months. They don't even need congressional approval to do it. That's where the Chinook were decimated. How can I put this? There are worlds within worlds and the Sailor Sea is showing us that one world that we are living in is in a deep crisis and the people that live above the water have to understand they don't own this place. Their presidents don't own it, their congressmen don't own it. They were gifted it. We are being molded by a system or a process or something to do things unspeakably cruel to each other and to perfectly innocent life forms that have done nothing to us. <laughs> but inhabit the same planet. There's something missing. There's a presence of an absence. And that's, I think, what connects what a human being can do to a sentient being that has the form of a killer whale, and how a human being can do that to a six-month-old native child, tearing it from the arms of its mother and shipping it 2,000 miles away. So we have a sanctuary ready for her to return to in the San Juan Islands where her family tours by routinely. There will be a moment. Tokatai is going to be singing out her song, and her mother is going to hear it. She can hear it 10 miles away. And they are going to reunite. And the Salish Sea, when that moment occurs, will never look the same again to anybody.
0: I love Jacinda Mack. She is one of my favorite people in the whole world. I was able to spend time with her on the Fraser River in BC this summer when I visited her and and heard stories and picked berries together and she is just such an incredible lover and fighter about the devastation of mining and what it does to rivers and salmon and land and people and the caribou and the deer and the bear who drinks from the river and eats the salmon, let alone the fact that British Columbia has 2,000 abandoned mines and it's the wild west still of gold mining. Because gold mining kind of, at least in the United States, has this romantic old-timey feel of these cute little towns and the gold pans and the miners and their little 1900s outfits and I know there's so much talk about renewable energy, but there's so little talk about the mining issues and the devastation, let alone the genocide of native people that gold mining entailed. And how are we really going to have a just transition into renewable energy when mining in mostly indigenous peoples or people of color's backyards is decimating land and people's health? It's really something that we have to all take a much stronger stance on. Because these mines are coming into the last remaining sacred, healthy headwaters on Earth and putting their tailings ponds. And then these companies are just going bankrupt and leaving this wastewater for thousands of years to continue polluting these areas that still have a chance of survival into the Anthropocene.
12: The work that Indigenous people do to protect their way of life, myself included, this is going to protect everybody. It's not going to protect just Indigenous people because it's going to be protecting clean water. It's going to be protecting clean air and clean soil. Every single thing that we need as human beings comes from the earth. These systems aren't working, obviously, because you have a disaster like Mount Polley, which is a failure both at the mine site, their oversight of their operations, and it's a failure of the province of British Columbia and their laws for not being monitored and being out of compliance and having no penalties, So there's really no incentive for them to follow these rules. We're feeling like we have to go outside of Canada. A lot of the movement that we've received from British Columbia has been in direct response to Alaska ringing the bell, saying there is a major problem happening in British Columbia. Alaskans need to know about this. Americans need to know about this. British Columbia is potentially setting us up for a major disaster in our waters the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909 was created specifically to address when there's pollution coming across the border, how to deal with it collectively and to make sure that it's being addressed so that you're not polluting your neighbor, basically. You know, it's really important for people to understand that these international tools are put there to have a bigger picture and scale of things, to know that you might have your idea, well, it's in likely B.C., Oh, well, actually, that extends to the caribou. No, that extends to the Fraser watershed. No, actually, that extends out to the entire Pacific region. Right. And beyond, because we're all connected by water. We're at this tipping point right now. And, you know, you, you see that with demonstrations around the world. We're at a tipping point where this capitalistic system based on luxury and consumerism is killing us. It's killing the planet. And we're seeing around the world also, if you if you follow the conversations around what's happening with water, is that water is starting fresh water sources. Drinking water sources are starting to disappear around the world and are predicted to disappear in major cities. So the earth is changing very quickly and we need to have a major shift in how we operate and what we consume and what we value for our very survival.
0: Paul Watson is such a controversial and courageous person. And I really admire his courage to be physical in the face of destruction and put his body on the line to protect these incredible ocean kin that are being slaughtered right now. And I love what he said in this excerpt that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if our good deeds are going to necessarily do anything But we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And I think about that all the time. We bring our heart and we bring our privilege and we bring everything that we have, our passion. And we show up regardless of the quote-unquote impossibilities. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know that nothing will be protected if we do nothing.
13: The lesson that I learned back in 1973, I was a, a medic for the American Indian Movement during the occupation of Wounded Knee. And uh, we were surrounded by about 3,000 federal troops. They were shooting at us. They killed two people, wounded 46. And I went to the leader of the American Indian Movement occupation there, uh, Russell Means, and I said, Russell, we don't have any hope of winning this, so what are we doing here? And he said to me, we're not here because we're concerned about the odds against us. We're not here because we're concerned about winning or losing. We're here because it's the right place to be and the right thing to do. We act in the present hoping that this will contribute to a positive outcome in the future. I don't give any thought to the odds against us and I do what I do in the present. I don't get pessimistic because I feel that if I act now that it might make a difference, it might not. But I also believe that the solution to an impossible situation is to find the impossible answer. And impossible answers can be found. In 1972, the very idea that Nelson Mandela would be president of South Africa was unthinkable and therefore impossible, but that impossibility became quite possible. So hopefully, out of the imagination and the minds and the courage of especially young people today, answers will be found. And I also believe that diminishment will result in more and more people become aware because it will now affect them personally. Our problem is that as a species, we have no memory, we have no vision about where we're going and we don't even know where we are. You know, you go to a biocentric cultures like in the Amazon or the outback of Australia and you ask people where do they come from. They can go back five, six hundred years and tell you who their family were. And because they know where they came from, they know who they are, because they know who they are, they know where they're going. So that a child born 500 years from now is very much a part of their family. But in our anthropocentric culture, we give no thought to the people of the past, and we certainly give no thought to the people of the future.
0: Stephen was one of my most challenging conversations, and there were so many preconceived notions I had going into, especially the first conversation we had with him on ancestry and misanthropy. Because I do carry a lot of misanthropy with me, seeing what's happening to the earth, and I struggle with my own Relationship to myself as somebody who's had some pretty devastating ancestry, somebody who hasn't wanted to connect with that past. It's a good place to be pushing my comfort zone. So I really appreciate Stephen because of that. And he was one of our most listened to episodes. So I think it's really interesting that many people are sitting in that misanthropic struggle right now.
14: The presence of sorrow among us in a time that's pleading for it could be the beginning of the grace that we're trying to accelerate towards by engaging in this misanthropy in the first place. To characterize some people as non-native, the language itself is a pin through the sternum, and it nails for all time the end of certain possibilities. And if anything, maybe the characterization of non-native contributes in its way to the appropriation and the plundering I'm not saying by this that everybody's, quote, magically indigenous. We know that, you know, history lends us a certain capacity for a recovering psyche. And it whispers to us, you know, there were times when we looked exactly as we do now, when something like sanity may have prevailed, and that when we both had an understanding of home, and a capacity for home, we were as indigenously capable as the people we may now be plundering are. If that's true, it's not a matter of going back, you know, any more than it's a matter of asking Indigenous people to be cooler uh, than they are right now by living in teepees again so that we can feel better about everything. And by the same token, I know that for myself, who's got sort of Irish... God's ancestry more immediately, that there's nobody over there that's waiting for me to come back, you know, and testify to what became of them when they left. I mean, basically, the dominant culture of North America, if I can use a generalization, is a disowned thing. You know, we abandoned by leaving, and the consequence of that is that we ourselves have been abandoned to a certain rootlessness. And uh, I've come to say that we're now so confounded by the freedom that we sought that we seem to be willy-nilly to trade a kind of freedom that no longer seems free, that is, a homelessness instead. We're willing to trade that for anyone else's home. If we are willing to learn instead of be saved, if we're willing to put the enormous contemplative labor and a labor towards sorrow instead of away from it, maybe there's a chance to actually learn something of one's own dappled ancestry. And I think that's an important word to use, you know. We imagine ancestry, we imagine a vector that seems to get narrower as it goes away from us. And we become, claim some kind of single identity, you know. In actual fact, of course, it vectors in the opposite direction. As time articulates our ancestry, it widens, not narrows, it widens to the point where the idea of, for example, white supremacy. It's so ludicrous as a historical reality. You know, there's no such thing as the white homeland. There's no, there's no such thing as white people for crying out loud.
0: Dune is one of the most <laughs> special people in my life. I got to spend quality time with him up at his home in Cordova, Alaska, and we rafted down the Copper River hadn't had run-ins with grizzly bears and sandstorms and glacier iceberg bottlenecks and the whole time we just were able to sit in such beautiful conversation together and he has been such a influence on my life and he is really a hero and I loved him saying we lose if we do nothing but we win by going in and I can still see him saying that
15: In order to diversify the economy, the native corporations in the spill zone, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act corporations decided that they were going to clear cut a million acres in the parallel path of the Exxon Valdez. And I sat down with Pamela and some of my friends and I said, I'll tell you what, if we clear cut the parallel path of the Exxon Valdez, we will no longer be fishing in 10 years or less. And this cannot happen on our watch. And so... Pamela asked me, she says, well, can you live with the outcome no matter what happens, win or lose? And I said, well, I can tell you this, Pamela, we will absolutely lose if we do nothing at all. And we win by going in. We have to be louder than everything else. But we have to remain a a voice of reason so people will reason with us. And so we need to take on our own people, our own native corporation. So I flew back down to Arizona and I went to my mother and laid next to her in her bed and I said, Mama, I need your advice. The natives are starting to clear cut the forest and we just had the Exxon spill and Exxon's appealing all the claims. It could be years before we ever see a settlement, but we're not going to make it if, if we nuke the forest. I said, look at what's happened to California and Oregon and Washington and their wild fisheries, their wild salmon way of life. What happens to those tribes and those people and those cultures that are tied? to these oceans and their resources. She said, well, I think it's your turn to give me advice for the next 30 years, and you tell me what we should do. And I said, well, we need to sue our people and they'll like it. We'll create an economic alternative to get paid to leave our trees standing, therefore protecting our subsistence and commercial fishing way of life. Because those trees have a right to life just like we do. And they happen to be the cathedral to our wild salmon.
0: So clearly Diana had a huge impact on me and the One Million Redwoods Project. I'd say she was and has been one of the most influential people behind how I view reforestation, restoration, and how we're moving forward with this biomimetic reforestation initiative that is the One Million Redwoods Project. So I'm bowing down. I always say that it is a discussion that can happen at the kitchen table.
16: I don't want it to be a discussion that's happening in the ivory tower of any university. I want ordinary people to hear the call of the forest and to have it ringing in their hearts so that the children will listen to them and that the children will go out and look at the species and also respect the biodiversity around them and hear that call. This is the global garden that we all share. We all share in its biodiversity, and we will all hold hands to protect it across the world. And how we're going to do that is by the bio-plan. Now, the bio-plan, if you read my works, you will see that we have inherited the mantle of nature. We have inherited a certain kind of divinity of life. And the divinity of life is spelt in the piano of our DNA. And how that piano is played in a zero and one pattern of thinking, which is the same as your computer systems. It's zero and one in all kinds of ways. And it's a binomial pattern, a fractal binomial pattern that is in your body. It's just like the falling of leaves of a tree. It's the same growth of a tree its the same thing. It goes in an exponential way, but it is binomial. So we understand these things. Anyway, in the bio plan, I'm asking you to do something. I have reckoned mathematically that if one person, one person, every person on this planet, that's about 8 billion people, plant a tree, one tree, every year for the next six years, will have the job done. But you have to do it a little differently. What you have to do is look after the tree. There's not enough to plant it. You have to look after it keep it. Maybe for your children, even name the tree, because that will make sure they remember the tree. But it has to be native tree into a native area. For instance, on the West Coast, you have to put in redwoods. I'm just giving you an example of one of the many hundreds of trees on the West Coast, because the redwood grows to be the tallest tree on the west coast
0: of America. It's an iconic tree. Nalini is such a badass. I cannot wait to hopefully one day go up in a tree with her and study epiphytes and mosses and carbon sequestration and all of the incredible things that she has been studying for so long. Over
17: the the long time span of the evolution of green plants, what has evolved is that plants have become incredibly efficient converters and stores of that sunlight energy through photosynthesis into their leaves and other living parts and dead parts of their structures. And that that carbon that's, say, manufactured in a leaf of a redwood will endure for some period of time, maybe from three to 10 years as a single needle or leaf, but at some point it will age just like we do. And that packet of carbon that's been stored in that leaf will fall to the forest floor, thanks to the presence of microbes that are able to decompose and move that carbon from the leaf into other forms, trees are then able to use those nutrients to create more structures, to create more leaves, to harvest more energy. And so I think that when we think about the carbon cycle, we have to think about how long is carbon stored in these different parts of a tree's structure. And how long is it stored in, say, uh, calcium carbonate deposits in a desert ecosystem? And how long has it been stored in oil reserves down far underneath the forest floor that was created during the Cretaceous? So when we think about carbon cycling, we have to think about not only how much is stored, how apparent it is, but how long will it be immobilized? How long will that carbon dioxide that's been taken out of the air, thanks to photosynthesis, And so when you think about a fast-growing tree in New England, for example, a maple tree that grows very quickly, it dies within 80 years and is recycled, that carbon is not staying immobilized very long. But when you look at a long-life tree like the redwoods that you're so protective of and trying to help along, I think that carbon is being stored for a much longer time period. So this idea of carbon cycling is sort of easy to explain when you have this theoretical kind of conceptual idea of how carbon is made, stored, and moved around. But when you want to tweak the system to remove carbon dioxide, then there are a lot of other factors, both biological and social and cultural, that we have to think about in order to maximize the amount of carbon dioxide that's taken out of the atmosphere.
0: I feel like it was some cosmic coincidence that I was able to speak with Peter Wellenbin and Janine Benyus right after the One Million Redwoods Kickstarter wrapped up, because as I was in the depth of the research trying to figure out how to get out of the reforestation industrial complex, Peter was this light on biomimetic reforestation, how to look at the forest in these family bands and really understand that I was on the right path with thinking about the understory plants and the fungi and the whole forest as a community rather than this monocrop plantation reforestation methods that's usually used and used over millions of acres, actually. So I just give so much credit to Peter and Nalini and Diana Uh, and Janine for really shaping the way that I understand reforestation and how to be really innovative moving forward and not just getting stuck in these conventional ways that are honestly really disruptive to the forest.
18: Some trees uh, like to live on their own because there are trees of the savannah of grasslands and there there are uh, usually no neighboring trees. So there are some trees like willows or some birch tree species uh, or apple trees, cherry trees, which uh, used to live on their own. But in general, for in the most woodlands uh, with the tree species like Douglas fir or sequoia or in, in our region, beech trees, oaks, acer and so on, they used to live in, in family bands. And there's a very good reason for that. A single tree knows instinctively, I'm not a forest. And just as a forest, you can cool down together in a, on a hot summer day. For example, trees are sweating together. Uh, beech tree is consuming as much as 500 liters of uh, water per day, and that means that the the air gets uh, very humid, uh, much cooler. The Discoveries from the University of Aachen found out that the dif- uh, the temperature difference from managed uh, beech tree forest to unmanaged beech tree forest is three degrees Celsius in uh, summertime, and two uh, conifer plantations, much more. So the the trees can cool down together, can create their own climate. And when we think about climate change, what climate change does to ecosystems, then uh, I would say the damage would be not that big when we wouldn't manage that intensive uh, forest. Because every tree you cut, you fell, uh, cause a damage because you have a gap in the canopy, there comes some sun, sunlight in, the air gets warmer, and the air gets drier, and that's stress for the trees. So they try to, to close that gap. But perhaps the next time the forester comes again, and the next tree will be felled and not just one but thousands, thousands. So the whole ecosystem is warming up. And uh, when we have on top the human made climate change, Then we will see many forests die. So uh, trees are used to uh, climate change because trees can become very old. When we look at uh, Europe, for example, the last thousand years, we have uh, had very warm times. We have had the Little Ice Age in the Middle Ages. I think the last very cold period was in the 1800s. So uh, a tree which can become 500 or even 1,000 years old uh, has to stand climate changes, uh, but it's only able to stand those changes together as a community. It's not only the climate, uh, but it's also when a tree gets weak, for example, or gets sick, uh, it gets support from from other trees through the roots, through the fungi network. Together they build a very stable ecosystem, or you can say they build a stable family band because. Trees, uh, they know exactly who is standing beside it. When you support each other, all together can become much, much older. And that system works on trees, that works on antelopes, that works on humans. If trees could talk to us, they would say, stand together, don't make that nonsense.
19: You know, as as biomimics, we're constantly looking at organisms and and learning about their superhero powers, right? What they can do. Hydraulic redistribution is, it was first noticed in the Amazon, actually, because researchers at Berkeley noticed that even though it hadn't rained, you know, the rainforest does has dry seasons, even though it hadn't rained for a while, there were still clouds forming above the trees. The trees were still transpiring. And where did that come from, right? What was happening there? And they found out that in the rainforest, you you know, we think about the shallow rooted trees, but there are some deep rooted shrubs and these are called bio irrigators and they're deep rooted. And what happens is during the rainy season, they do have shallow roots as well. And they take in the water from the shallow roots and they actually push that water down the root counterintuitively down the root and then out into the soil where they bank that water. 10% of all annual rainwater uh, is banked in this way. And then during the dry season, that water moves into the taproot. It goes up and it goes out the shallow roots of these shrubs, thereby watering the forest around them. And the bioirrigators are throughout the forest. And, you know, I can imagine a time, especially in a climate-stressed world, where we would begin to plant bioirrigators, you know, in our landscape, now that we know about them. I mean, this is what I talk, what I mean by generosity, is that these bioirrigators are not just keeping the water, they're pushing the water out into the soil around them, the upper layers, and and uh, and watering the trees around them, which is really interesting. It It goes against this idea that you know, nature, red and tooth and claws, Tennyson said. It looks more like as we learn about the wood wide web and things like bioirrigators, it looks like the system, you know, creating conditions conducive to life in the system, has been rewarded by natural selection over long periods of time. Our Our new move in agriculture, for instance, for a long time we've been focused on the plant. So focused that we're even genetically engineering the plant. And I think the next stage for us needs to be to learn to help the helpers. You know, those myriad microbes that are in symbiotic relationship with plants and helping them do everything from germinate on time to resist pathogens, to get phosphorus and water and exchange alarm signals among plants. I mean, these helpers, including the bioirrigators, Maybe our job is not to, quote, unquote, manage any longer, but rather to be in this role of helping the helpers. What do the microbes need? What do the bioirrigators need to do the job that they have done over long periods of time, right, to keep the system healthy and humming? It's a different role for us uh, as Western industrial (laughs)
0: humans, you know, but we can learn it. Roo Map is just so wonderful. Her strength and tenacity. I just really love how simply and clearly she explains things and how accessible she is to so many folks who may feel like they don't belong in nature or it's not for them. And she really welcomes us all into the fold and I really love her for that.
20: Nature is a way for us to be relieved of the stress of racism that We all live with, I don't care if you're black or white, we all feel the pressure of of that cancer. You know, when I'm in nature, the trees do not know what color I am. You know, the birds don't know what my gender is. The flowers don't know how much money I have in my bank account. And so I think that we can rely also on nature to be that equalizer for us.
0: This conversation with Ron was actually one of my mom's favorite episodes. She would tell me how she would go around to people and she'd say, it's the space between the ears, the value system, because he could really get to these very deep and complex issues with this type of humor. And and it really was able to strike a chord in so many people. It's one of our most listened to episodes and my mom's favorite.
21: <laughs> it's amazing what a sunflower can do. It's almost difficult for people to see a sunflower and not smile and not engage, especially when this sunflower might be 10 to 12, 14 feet high. It transforms people to walk down the street and all of a sudden you just smell beautiful smells. You see color. I mean, they know what color therapy does. You know, why Why are these elementary schools and why are they the colors? Why are they this bland beiges and grays? They already know all the psychologists know what these do to your psyche. You know, you're in a fenced area. You're in a place with little windows. You know, you're already confined. So a lot of times you look and it's like, wow, these kids, they're already in prison. So when they go to prison, it feels like normal. So it's like, but I have a real simple saying it's beauty in beauty out. If you put beauty into a space that has none, that's what you're going to get out of it. It's the same thing that you put into your body. If you put healthy, nutritious, vibrant, alive food in your body, that's what you're going to get instead of the dead things, instead of the chemicals that we are putting into our bodies. And that's what I my garden in front of my house is a, one of the biggest social experiments that you could do because it shows how all of a sudden people see concrete and asphalt and, and trash. And then you see this whoa, this is an almond tree, this is a banana tree in the middle of South Central on the street with fruiting bananas on it. You realize that we're not here alone, that we, everything on this planet and the planet is alive. Everything around you is alive. And you were saying about the plants calling you. Yes, there's videos online where people have connected electrodes to the plants and amplified the sounds that they're giving off. And every plant is given off a separate sound, and it sounds like an orchestra.
10: And it was a difficult time of year. It's in March. It's, it's during the hunger gap. There's not a lot around. And we found a few nettles. Found one or two St. George's mushrooms. Yeah, you know, there was a bit of stuff around, but it wasn't much of a meal. And then I was some. Um, stepping down to this stream. And there beside the stream was a deer which had just died. It was still warm, its eyes were still bright. Now, you shouldn't pick up an animal which has just died and you have no idea why it's died, but I was too excited to think about that and to do this rationally. And I just got my hands round its ankles and I swung it onto my shoulders. And the moment I felt its weight and its warmth on my shoulders I turned into a different creature it was extraordinary I mean the way I describe it to myself was that civilization slid off as easily as a bathrobe it was like I was naked it was like I'd, I'd just become this new creature which was underneath the creature I thought I was
12: being on the land makes you strong it makes you strong physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually because you are consciously reconnecting to Source. Just yesterday, I was out harvesting devil's club and cedar bark and alder, and out there on the land, running up and down and slipping and you know sliding up and down these mountains in New Halk territory, and breathing in that medicine and being out there with friends and with my son, and that's healing. That's really healing. It would be really ironic and and horrible if I spent all of my time in boardrooms trying to fight for clean water and clean environments and for our families and then never actually got to do that myself. So I make a conscious effort to be in season and to, to put those values as a priority and kind of schedule my calls and my work around making sure that I'm also harvesting salmon and I'm harvesting medicines and I'm going to birthday dinners with family and I'm doing these things that ground me and strengthen me and fuel me. When I go out to these communities and Indigenous people come, I have received so much medicine from different Indigenous people, from territories, from all over, who will come to me and thank me for speaking out, and they'll give me medicine to smudge or tease or whatever it is that they may have to share and say, make sure you take care of yourself. Here's something from the land from here to help you in your journey they know that this work comes with great personal sacrifice also.
0: Reverend Kalani is definitely one of my heroes. This conversation with him was so fantastic. I love his voice. I love his passion. I love his humor. And I really love how he doesn't want us to be victims and to flip the script on natural disasters because it's true, they're only going to get more and more intense. And I think leaders like Kalani are so important right now to look to, to be guided by people who really understand the complexity of the situation and have so much energy to lead us forward.
22: They're not disasters. These are actually natural processes. And then it's only a disaster or a hazard because people with their stuff Are standing in the way. It's a disaster now only because we put the Walmart there. So these natural processes, they fluctuate. Like all other events in life, they're on an arc, a curve, a natural cycle of positive and negative influence. So some years they will be greater, some years they will be less. But overall climate change suggests that the less is getting lesser and the more is getting more, if you know what I mean. So we're going to see greater, hotter, longer duration and higher impact events and less throttling down to smaller events now in the cycle because where we are as climate is impacted by our actions and activities. That being said, We really do need to prepare our communities and we need to do it in a way that makes us not victims, but responders, you know what I mean? So that we don't feel like we're dangling at the end of a leash, waiting to be supplied something by some emergency service contractor, but rather that we're definitely in control of our situation and able to provide for ourselves. And that's a whole shift in consciousness.
23: While you fight the bad guys, you got to fight the bad guys, girl. You know, because if you don't fight the bad guys, they will run over you. So, you know, continued work, obviously, on on opposition to mega projects, stupid infrastructure projects like the Line 3 pipeline that we are facing now, 915,000 barrels a day that they want to bring through northern Minnesota. Last year, we defeated a similar pipeline in the same territory, that was called the Sandpiper. We defeated them in Minnesota, and now they are back. There are already hundreds of people camping on the proposed route in Minnesota, and if they issue that permit, there will be thousands of people. And I don't think that Minnesota is North Dakota. They do not want, essentially, a civil war, which is what they're going to get if they actually issue that permit. They should ship those pipes to Flint, to Flint, Michigan, a place that hasn't had a functioning water system for about 1,200 days. But at the same time, I want to make where we're going. And I don't even call it the alternative. I call it the enlightened path. I mean, in our prophecies, it's referred to as the time of the seventh fire, and we're told we got a choice between two paths. One is well-worn, but it is scorched. The other is not well-worn, but it is green. I work on moving us to the green path. You know, in the meantime, you got to make sure that they don't destroy you.
0: Winona's tenacity and courage to be militant and to say, you know, I don't think Minnesota wants a civil war. I mean, that is powerful. And I have so much respect to those who we've had on the podcast who are willing to put their bodies on the line and willing to really physically stand up for what's right and not just get comfortable and hide behind their computer screens or in their safe little homes, because honestly, none of us are safe. So I really challenge myself as well as all of us to get braver and to really know that at some point we're all going to be called upon to stand up and to be on the front lines. I want to say that Terry is one of my heroes, but I realize that I want to say that about every single person who comes on this show, but I do feel like Terry and I connected in a way that was so beautiful. And I felt her and I really felt the land speak through her. And I always think of her when I think of the Red Rocks of Utah, because I feel like she has so much to teach me about sacred rage and how to be a land protector.
24: Honestly, I've taken hope out of my vocabulary. It's not that I'm not hopeful. It's that I don't think it's helpful. And rather than hope, I I choose to think about faith. I have tremendous faith in our capacity to change. I have tremendous faith in the power of consciousness. I have tremendous faith in in the works of of people to make very quick changes. But we're up against a capitalistic society, not just the United States, but China and every other country that wants the same kind of lifestyle that we have. So when Donald Trump says at the G20, Gathering, you know, Western civilization is at risk. He's right, but not in the way that he thinks, you know, and he said our lifestyle is at risk. He's right, but not for the reasons. If we want to survive as a species in fellowship with other species, we are going to have to shift our point of view and become more empathetic, become more unselfish, think about what sacrifice means in a spiritual sense, and what the spiritual implications are of climate change. But we're still in the stage of denial. We're in denial of death, we're in denial of of where we find ourselves now, and that there is a real world, and it is really dying right now. And what concerns me most are those that have no voice. And those are the birds, those are the plants, those are the moths, those are the elephants, all of the creatures among us who are struggling. And That's what I'm concerned about.
0: I met Nemo at COP21 in Paris with my dear friend Jade Begay and the Indigenous Environmental Network, and I was at this Rights of Mother Nature tribunal, and he was on the stage with some other incredible activists, and I just was so moved by him that I waited till the very end of the event and he was standing alone for just a split second and I ran up to him and at that point we made a connection and it was a dream of mine to get him on the podcast actually and it took a few years but when I finally was able to connect with him again I am just I am just beyond amazed by his strength to go through what he goes through every year in Nigeria, to think that there's a spill, an oil spill, the size of Exxon Mobil that happens every year there in their delta, which once was a pristine, beautiful ecosystem. And the strength that he has to keep going for his land and for his people, I have so much respect for him.
22: Memory is a storehouse for creativity, for innovation, because the truly innovative human is one that lives in harmony with nature. Fighting nature is clearly the pathway to failure because nature can defend herself. Nature can actually do without us. We're not masters of the universe, just a part of a great complexity of beings around us and beings within us. This clearly is the way to the future we have to go back to the past and the past is not a cake the past is innovation is harmony the past is a recovery of solidarity
24: the colorado plateau that's another story you know if we had a raven's point of view an aerial view it looks like an exposed nervous system with all the infrastructure the roads the pads the oil and gas rigs the flares at night it's it's a heartbreak You know, you go into the Uinta Basin and it's worse. You see fracking, infant mortality rate has skyrocketed because of fracking, water poisoned in states like Wyoming. Again, it's connecting the dots. It's it's not just one community. But when you start looking at the collective in the interior west, I can't believe what I'm seeing just in my lifetime. Again, I think it's why public lands matter so much. Ayana, you know, it they're breathing spaces in a society that is increasingly holding its breath. So I do think we have to fight for these lands. And I'm so encouraged in that this is front and center of, of a new conversation. There's people in the East that have no knowledge of what public lands are because it's privatized in the East. They don't exist. Same with the Midwest, they've been plowed under. So I think people are finally coming to understand that we have a great heritage. These are not just public lands, but there are public stories, our natural histories and our cultural histories. And that's very, very powerful to the identities of Americans.
0: I so appreciate Jackie in the way that she speaks about the separation of people and land. And of course, there is now a lot of talks luckily, around reparations. And what does it mean to reunite people with their land, whether that's indigenous people or reparations for people of color? I think about Queen Quet and the Gullah Geechee Nation in the East Coast. And I think this is a really huge topic that we all need to be sitting with, is how can people start to have that access and then build relationships that are in harmony, that aren't just extractive.
20: Of course, the devil becomes in the detail. So as we talk about a systemic transformation from a society that's built on principles and practices where there are inherently winners and losers, where kind of capitalism means that there's capitalization and then there are those who are capitalized upon. And it's usually, you know, of course, a, through the reckless extraction and usage of natural resources. And then we've had this extraction of, of people, and then the, the, the use and abuse of, of people through systemic oppression. And so, how do we really um, affirm human rights and earth rights as we move forward? And how do we affect a systemic transformation where the vision of, of people most impacted will be things like everyone having access to clean air, clean water, uncontaminated land, and the commons in terms of a place called home.
5: In the Antiquities Act of 1906, there is only authority for the president to designate. And so for him to do anything more or do anything else He's going to need the backing of the entire Congress to do that. So we feel really confident that actually what he's doing is not legal in a court of law. You can see that how they snuck in drilling into the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge up in Alaska through the tax bill. And that received very little fanfare or attention because the parties are playing up the whole tax cut that people are getting money but, you know the money doesn't come from nowhere somebody pays for it and you know indigenous people indigenous lands that are paying for it again we've had the Gwich'in relatives come all the way to DC to try to protest this whole action and this this inclusion of the drilling of their lands in that bill and unfortunately that bill has passed so now we're thinking about what does that mean more opportunities to destroy and come in and develop these places that have no business being developed. They should be left alone the way that they are.
0: Oh, Faith Jamil and Princess Loopjack, yes. They were another two allies that I met during COP21 in Paris. Again, I saw Faith speak, and I remember literally feeling the land, the Arctic, the caribou speak through her, through their voices, and they are such warrioresses for this planet. I see them traveling and speaking in Washington, D.C. to fight for the Arctic, and I just love how the Gwachin, 20 plus years ago, decided then and there that they were not going to give into corporate interests; that they were going to commit and fight for their land and for their people. It's an ecosystem that we all need to be focused on. The Arctic is ground zero in many ways, and Trump just opened it for drilling And losing the Arctic and the space that it provides so many of our kin is indescribable and irreplaceable.
25: We believe if anything happens to the caribou, it happens to the Gwich'in and vice versa. We have old songs, old dances that tell of our relationship with the caribou. We still use all the bones to create tools that we need we still make clothing from the hides uh, when the caribou is in our territories we honor the caribou with our hunt and then that feeds us all through the winter and we still live like that it's a very very powerful relationship and it's a very powerful time when you're out on the land it's like all of your senses reawaken. The place that is a threat right now is the biological heart of the refuge system. That's the place where the caribou give birth to their young. And it's the only safe place that this herd, the porcupine caribou herd, will go to give birth to their young. If the oil rigs are allowed to come in, it will displace them from their nursery, basically. That place is perfect for the caribou to use as their birthing grounds because the high winds keep mosquitoes away at that time. It's a safe area from predators because mm-hmm. it's a coastal plain. They can see predators from far and also. The grass that grows there, that's the exact nutrients for newborn calves to get enough energy because this herd is one of the furthest migrating herds of North America. We have 15 Gwich'in communities that are strategically located on the migratory route of the porcupine caribou herd. We've been seeing impacts from climate change for years here in Alaska, In the year 2000, there was really heavy snows, then it was a warm spring. So that year, the caribou were migrating through their wintering grounds in Canada, heading north to the coastal plain here in Alaska to give birth to their young. Because of the heavy snows, their migration north was slowed down. And by the time they reached the Porcupine River... The ice, because it was so warm, the ice had broke early that year. And so the females tried to wait out the ice till it all flowed. And they stayed on the south side of the river trying to wait it out. They waited too long and they all dropped their young on the south side of the river. They still have this instinct to go to their calving grounds. And that heavy flow of water was too volatile. That year we lost 15% of the herd and 43,000 calves drowned. That's why that place is so important. Just imagine what would happen if year after year they're being forced to drop their young somewhere else. It would wipe out the herd.
15: How are you going to be able to find strength every day? The only way that you're going to do that is if you if you go out and, and you take on those powers that be. You make those decisions for yourself and your people and your communities. And you build these restoration funds. You demand that government and industry pay these restoration funds because it's the only way that we're going to restore what has been lost and preserve what we still have. And right now, the majority of of land that has fossil fuels under it just happens to have Native people standing on it. And so if we were to protect Native rights around the world, we would protect some of the last wild green spaces we have on planet Earth, but it's going to take the people To believe in themselves and to believe in the planet. We have a duty to stop this violence
19: against the earth. We have a duty to stop the creation of what I call a seed slavery and a food dictatorship. To push poisons everywhere, genetic contamination and pollution everywhere, just so one company can harvest super profits through collection of royalties. Often illegal, as in the case of India, what has pushed the cotton farmers to suicide. So, we are talking about an ecocidal and genocidal system. Ecocidal because it is destroying biodiversity. Genocidal because humans are part of that web of biodiversity. Economies rest on ecology. And every system of technology and economics that destroys the biodiversity of life on Earth also destroys those who depend
22: on it.
0: I was floored the entire time. I almost forgot that I was nervous that the connection would fail because I couldn't believe I was speaking with Vandana Shiva, who was one of the catalysts in my activist journey. She is brilliant. She is tireless in her advocacy. and I'm really hoping that we can do a follow-up soon. Well, thank you all for listening to our 100th episode of For the Wild. I really want to thank everybody who has been a part of this production. There's been people who have come and left such a mark and a spirit to this podcast. Madison Migulski, who gave her heart and soul to this project week in and week out. And we just shared the most incredible conversations about research and themes and topics and guests. And it was such a joy to be able to work with her and reach out who an incredible friend and editor who I had so much fun working with. your Stores, of course, who is our producer and editor now, who is absolutely fantastic and so consistent and brilliant. I love Andy. And Francesca Glassbell, who's also a producer of this show. Just her mind and her soul and her spirit are a joy to work with. And Molly Lebove, She's done so much for us with media and videos and storytelling, an incredible storyteller. And of course, Carter Lou McElroy, who has been with me since Unlearnery Wild before that, Deep Green's Garden before that, crazy young bleach blonde She She's really an incredible music coordinator and ally. And then there's some people behind the scenes who you may not have heard of yet. We have Erin Wise, our new communications director, who is a badass. She is so brilliant. Her mind is like this mycelial web of connection and people and thought processes. We have Mara Joy, our incredible co-managing director and Mama Hen. And Melanie Younger, our other co-managing director, who is a powerhouse. And also we have Erica Ekram, who turns a blank dock into magical beautiful visual deliciousness (laughs) and then we have danny becker our land papa at cougar mountain who always keeps things rolling and of course we have march young who is the co-founder of unlearn your wild and for the wild organization and has been with us throughout every project behind the scenes being the wizard and the madman that he is so grateful to march And of course, we want to thank all of you out there and all of the guests. We literally need this community of people to be together to do this work. Like Kurt says, worlds within worlds. And we are that. Floating together, doing this work, pushing each other, comforting each other, grieving together, dreaming together. I really can't thank you all enough for being a part of this journey. To uplift these stories and to create an anthology for the Anthropocene. And if you're up for making a financial contribution, go to our website at forthewild.world donate, or sign up on Patreon to receive bonus material and behind-the-scenes juice.